So what does a church need? A pretty important question for us to ponder on a Sunday morning. Some of you might think, well, the church needs prayer. Others say, well, a church needs good preaching, or at least not boring preaching. Or you might say, no, a church needs some, some really good ministries or programs for like children or youth or for adults. You think, no, a church really needs some really good music. Or no, a church needs to be missional, where we have hearts that want to go out and reach those that are far from God. Now, some of you here are a lot more practical types, and you think, well, a church needs chairs. A church needs screens, and we, we, we need coffee. Amen? I guess you don't need coffee, but you kind of need coffee. There's all kinds of things that we can think about from the spiritual to the really practical that you can say a church needs this. But it's important for us because this church is nine months old. I mean, which is amazing that we're now headed towards our one-year anniversary in April. And so being still a young, under-one-year-old church plant, it's important for us to think, well, what does a church need? Because that's going to shape who we become and what, what kind of culture we're going to have as a church. And will we be a church that truly displays the glory of God? Will we be a church that will be a showcase of the mercy and the grace of God? Or will it be something else? I mean, we need to really be honest on what does a church need. But I'll even add this. Um, our vision includes being a multiplying church. It's not as though God led me to plant his church to say, man, I want, I want to mega church. That, that's where it's at. That's when you've arrived. You know what? No disrespect to large churches. God can use any size church. But the vision that he has given to this church is to be a healthy, missional, multiplying church. And so if we're going to be a church that's going to plant a new church, and I pray that we do so within five years of our launch, because if we go pursue a, a new building campaign or something else, and then that takes all of the time, energy, resources, inertia, then all of a sudden that begins to shape your church, that, that shapes your trajectory. And our trajectory is to be a multiplying church. And so therefore, I pray that before we even think about building or buying any building, that we would first plant a church. That we would be a multiplying church. Because this is what God has called us to be. Because we're desperate for more churches, not just here, but across this country and even globally. What does a church need? And if we're going to be a multiplying church, quite honestly, we need to think about that because what are we going to reproduce? I pray that we would reproduce something beautiful and healthy and not reproduce something that is unhealthy. As we continue in the book of Galatians today in chapter 2 in this series called Free at Last, we're going to be pondering what exactly fundamentally a church 
needs. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that at the end of chapter 1, Paul is giving his testimony. He's describing how he went from being a hater and a persecutor of Jesus and his people to being a preacher of the gospel. He describes this incredible transformation that the gospel accomplished. And so he's just continuing in continuing his story. Because remember, Paul didn't write chapters and verses. He just wrote the letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. So chapter 2, verse 1, he's just saying that 14 years after he met Peter and the other Jewish leaders, the apostles in Jerusalem, that a decade and a half later, he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, let me just remind you of something. They didn't have Expedia back then. It wasn't as though traveling these long distances was that easy or that commonplace. It was a much more dangerous and expensive and very difficult journey. And so for Paul, who had been all over Turkey, so Asia and all over Europe planting churches, to then put that on pause and to leave his mission field to take two of his most trusted associates, two of his ministry partners, Titus and Barnabas, and to put his his ministry on hold and travel to Jerusalem was a big deal. That's why he waited 14 years to do it. It wasn't a pop in, pop out kind of thing. And so he goes, why? What would be so important for Paul to put church planting, which is his life's calling and passion, to have Jesus known among the Gentiles, those that are far from God, to put that on hold, to go hang with the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Something very important compelled him to go. Well, as we'll read in Ephesians, that's not true, Galatians 2. We read the early in the service, I know. But as we read Galatians 2 this morning, what you're going to see is it was an unhealthy church. It was toxic. They had problems. And at the root, they lacked unity. And so if you want to know why Paul went, I'll give you two words. Gospel unity. Paul went because he wanted to ensure that there was gospel unity in Jerusalem. That is where the primary Christian church leaders were. And so Peter and James and all of the other apostles were in Jerusalem. And they were the teachers. They were, think of them like the, the pastors of the Jerusalem churches. And so they were very prominent because they walked with Jesus. And they're writing the New Testament they needed to be prominent. They were the apostles, the sent ones by Jesus. And yet, under their leadership in Jerusalem, it became very unhealthy. And there was division. And so Paul goes down to Jerusalem to straighten them out. Quite literally, that's the language that we'll see. The word that we get, like orthodontist, that straightens your teeth. That word is used on ortho gospel, like straighten them out to be straight in line with the gospel is what you see here in Galatians chapter 2. 
the main idea from this chapter, if you want the, the, the theme here, is that the church's central need is gospel unity. All of the other needs are secondary and flow from and will fall into place if you have gospel unity. And so our central, most fundamental need as a church, we talked about what are our needs. What we need most is gospel unity. As I'm saying, everything else falls into place. And so, for example, you might say, well, we need prayer as a church. Yes, we do. We need to be united as a people in prayer. You say, well, we need the word. We do need the word. We need to be united around the word. And it is the gospel that then creates that unity around the word. You say, well, we need to be on mission to reach the lost. We do. We need to be united together around the gospel and then go reach the lost. You're like, well, no, we need some good music in here. Yeah, we do. We need unity about the music. Because quite honestly, maybe today we didn't sing your favorite song. But we weren't singing to you. We were singing to Jesus. And we carefully, on purpose, select songs that fit together with the theme for every Sunday morning. It's an intentional, prayerful, long-term planning endeavor that, that Katie, who leads the worship team, and myself do. And it's, it's a labor of love. Anything that you name or our church needs, at its basis, we need to do it with gospel unity and not be divided because divided we cannot fulfill what God is calling us to do as individuals or as renewal church. And do you know why? This is not random. I'm not just spewing opinions here. There's a reason why I say that gospel unity is the most foundational need that any church has is because gospel unity is the means that God uses to accomplish his purpose for us. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Don't have time to read the whole section, but here's some excerpts from Revelation 5. This is heavenly elders and even some angels that are praising Jesus. And it says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you catch that? Jesus was slain to redeem people, to bring them out of slavery for God. From what? Every tribe and language and people and nation, a diverse people of God in heaven, praising Jesus, praising worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. God's purpose is to create one people that will worship him for eternity, but this one people who've been saved by the blood of the lamb are a diverse people. All nations, colors, languages, an incredible, stunning unity within our diversity. That is where human history is moving. That is where our lives will end up, all of us together praising the Lamb who was slain and giving him all the glory because he is worthy. And so this is your 
purpose. It's why you are alive. It's why this church was planted. Because we yearn to see the renewal of God to be extended in Bell County and the world so that people from all nations and all backgrounds can together belong to the one people of God. One people worshiping Jesus forever. And I think that we don't process it this way, but I have met in my time living in the Middle East and, and pastoring and planting in a, in a global context, I discovered firsthand what I knew from the Bible, but I saw it. That we have, as believers, we have more in common with that Pakistani believer than you do with your white neighbor down your street who is lost. You have more in common with that Japanese believer than your neighbor, unless they know Jesus too. Because what you have in common with your lost neighbor might be same skin color. You both like the cowboys. Maybe you both like to, I don't know, grill a brisket, whatever. Like you, you like certain things. Maybe you work together and you have some similarities, things you have in common. And you might feel like, oh, we have a lot in common. But with that persecuted Pakistani what you have in common with him is eternal. You share the same Holy Spirit. You share a passion for Jesus. You love his word. You want to reach the lost and you'll be with him forever in heaven. So we actually have more in common with people across the planet who love Jesus than you do with your neighbors who don't love Jesus because of what binds us. Let me share from this text four truths about gospel unity. And as we do, I've I've titled this sermon that we are set free to embrace people that are not like you. That's what the gospel does. It sets us free where we can love and embrace people that are very different from us. And so let's work through Galatians 2. Let's start with verses 1 through 10. And let's identify four truths about the gospel, beginning with verse 1, when I finally can turn from 2 Corinthians. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before me, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential 
added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that it had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hands of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let me give you the first truth which is the source of our gospel unity. So let's see here the source of our unity. So in verse 2, Paul says that he went to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Now, I know people can use a language like, oh, God told me to. Ever heard someone say that? Oh, God, God told me to say this, or God told me, okay, I mean, that's fine. I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to say as long as it's true. But when Peter says, God told me to, it's a whole different category. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 12 describes how Peter was taken to heaven and received revelations from the very lips of Jesus. So when, when Paul says that he got a revelation, when Paul says, Jesus told me to, it's not exactly the same as when you or I might say, God told me. Because with him, it was from the actual, literal lips of Jesus. And so Paul has his revelation, and he arrives in town in Jerusalem, and what he does is he he talks about those who, he says, seemed influential. So though he, he's saying, okay, I'm looking around this Jerusalem church, and these are the guys that I'm identifying that have influence. They're leaders in the church. And so he calls a ministry meeting. He calls a come-to-Jesus meeting with all of the Jerusalem church leaders. And it says that he set before them the gospel that he had been proclaiming among the Gentiles. So he calls all of these leaders in, and he sets the gospel before them. Now, they were struggling here with the lack of unity in, on embracing Gentiles. And so you had Jews and Gentiles. And a Gentile was anyone that was not a Jew. And so at its root, it was a racist problem. Now, did Paul come and say, we need to have some sensitivity training. We need to go ahead and have a seminar so that you guys can watch some 1982 videos and, and understand what it means to be culturally sensitive in the workplace. No! He sets the gospel before them. He says, the solution to what you're struggling with, the solution to your racism, the solution to why you can't embrace people that are different from you, the solution is not more information. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying that is the solution. He sets the gospel before them. 
Now, what you see here is that Paul was afraid. He was afraid of something. He was afraid of what was happening. But if you've read the story of Paul, that, that's crazy talk. Paul wasn't afraid of anything. This is the guy that would get in the face of the Greek elites and tell him about Jesus with no fear. He would stand before Roman officials that could chop his head off, and he was bold. He got whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was fearless. So what could Paul possibly be so afraid of what was happening in Jerusalem? What he was afraid of is that his fellow Jewish leaders were blowing it. He was afraid that they were not preaching the true gospel or that they weren't correcting or preventing false teachers from teaching. And so he wanted to make sure that they were preaching the true gospel and that they were then silencing those that were preaching a false gospel that was leading to disunity in the church And so it says that he did not want it to be as though he was running in vain. He's doing this work. He's planting churches. He's running hard after Jesus. And then here's these dudes that are not doing their part. And he's like, no, no, no. We need to get this straight now so that we're running together and that I'm not running in vain. He was afraid that the church would be unhealthy and that it would be divided. Because Paul's opponents were saying, in order to be saved, you need faith in Jesus and be circumcised. Now, I know there's some kids and teenagers in the room. If you don't know what that is, ask your mom later what that is. Maybe your dad. I don't know. It's up to you. But ask one of your parents what that is. I I won't get into details here this morning. But what you have was they were saying, You have faith in Jesus and be circumcised and eat kosher. And essentially what they're saying was become Jewish. So if you want to be a believer in Jesus, great, trust in him. And give up your cultural identity and embrace being Jewish. So what they were saying, think of it this way. They were saying, it's not as though all Jewish people are Christians. I mean, they acknowledged that there were some Jews that didn't trust in Jesus. So they were saying, not all Jewish people are Christian, but all Christians must become Jewish. So what that would mean if, if that had not been stamped out by Paul in the first century, if that hadn't happened, then if that had continued, what you would have had was today, If an Italian wanted to come to faith in Jesus, he needed to give up being Italian and become Jewish. If you were from Kenya, you'd have to stop being distinctly African and you would have to become Jewish. If you were, you know, a a hick from the sticks, you'd have to give up being from the sticks and become Jewish to follow Jesus, like giving up your cultural identity and becoming Jewish, beginning with circumcision and everything that followed with that in order to follow the Messiah and in order to become a believer, to be saved. 
This is a corruption of the gospel. Because the gospel does not say to become Jewish and give up your cultural identity. What Paul was afraid of was that you would have a division between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. And that is a violence to the gospel of Jesus because we are one in Christ. He did not want division. And so he went down to Jerusalem to make sure that there would not be division. What would have happened was both sides for all of human history would have been questioning each other. The Jewish believers, I don't know about those Gentiles. I don't think they actually know Jesus. And the Gentiles, I don't know about them Jews. I doubt they know Jesus. And it it would have been a fractured and divided church. So again, what they had was not a lack of information. What they had was a gospel problem. What they needed to do was to learn to work out the implications of the gospel. And they just hadn't done that yet. I don't think this was on purpose by Peter and the other Jewish leaders. They just hadn't been led yet to think through what are the implications of what the gospel produces and how it leads to beautiful unity within our diversity. And so the heart of the problem was here that Paul was confident that the Jewish apostles knew the true gospel. So he knew that they knew the gospel, but the problem is that they weren't being true to the gospel. They knew it, but they weren't being consistent with it. And so what is the source of our unity, it says it in verse 5, we did not yield in submission to these false brothers. So they did not give in to them. It says, even for a moment, it says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He says, if we give in to these people that are saying to give up who you are in your cultural identity and take on circumcision and add trust in Jesus and do this and do this and do this, then what you do is you lose the gospel. And so what is it? He says, so that the gospel would be preserved for you. The source of our unity is the gospel. This is the foundation. This is the source. So our unity comes from, it flows from the gospel itself. So the Jewish leaders were just grappling with the gospel. And they were just wondering and having to come to a proper understanding of, was the gospel of Jesus merely a reformation of the Jewish religion? So essentially Jewish, but just reform the Jewish religion, or was the gospel message for the whole world where God was creating a global people of all cultures and all ethnicities. And they had to face this. And so Paul's opponents were focused on the external, what you can see. So they focus on the external, which really is what we do, how we behave on a Sunday morning how well we try to impress everyone else with our religiosity. That's the externals, our appearances. 
maintaining the appearance that we got it all together. That's just the external religion. The gospel focuses on the internal, which is not what you do, but what you are. The gospel focuses on transforming your heart, the power of the Spirit, because of Christ's work on the cross, and we become new. We have the new birth, and we become completely different with new hearts. And so following Jesus is about who I am, not what I do for him. What you do will flow from who you are. If you focus on just doing in your own strength, you will fail miserably. So we don't ever do enough good in obeying the law to somehow achieve salvation or obey God enough or be good enough. None of us can be good enough. Jesus already obeyed for us in totality. And so our response is to trust. We don't need any religious ritual like circumcision to be saved. It's your faith in the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus on the cross and resurrection fulfilled everything that circumcision pointed to. Our sinful flesh has been cut off from us. We are free at last. We have freedom in Christ, as Paul described. And if you've tasted of this freedom, of this gospel, then you know that it changes your heart and you can do things that you could never do in your own strength. Like embrace people that are different from you. And so at its essence, the source of our our unity is the gospel. Truth number two, what is the result of our gospel unity? So what is the result? We just read in verses 3 through 5 how Titus, who's Greek, went, met the Jewish leaders, and they did not force him to get circumcision, which was huge because these, these Jewish apostles basically said, Titus, you're one of us. You belong to God's people. And it says they gave him the right hand of fellowship, which means that they wanted to share their lives and to participate with following Jesus with this Greek believer, this Gentile, Titus. And so the fact that they said, Titus, we love you, we accept you, and you don't need to be circumcised, showed that the apostles got it. They understood the significance and were basically saying no to these false teachers. Because Paul says we have freedom in Christ, and we're no longer going back, it says, into slavery. And so you see through Paul's leadership, they now have gospel unity. They all agreed that it was faith in Jesus alone and no other external requirements for salvation. And what was the result of this gospel unity? Freedom. That's the result. The gospel brings freedom. And there's a lot. But I'll keep it simple. There's three from this text. One is it brings spiritual freedom. Verse 4 says that we are set free. And so this, this notion that because of Jesus coming and dying, the truth is that now we are set free from sin. We are set free from Satan. We, we are made new. We're no longer in bondage 
to our sin. And so we have spiritual freedom. We are free at last. But we also have cultural freedom. It's not just spiritual. We also have cultural freedom. So the gospel brings cultural freedom. People who come to faith are free to worship Jesus within their cultural context. If you read missionary writings or if you've been overseas and you've seen some older ministries from like the 19th and early 20th century, you would see like in Africa, it's a trip. People that dress like just, you know, native, you know, indigenous Africans, but on Sunday morning, they put on a suit and a tie. And then they go into a red brick building with a steeple on it, which, by the way, is not African architecture. It's not. Why in the world would an African worship in a red brick building with a steeple on it? That is Western. That is not indigenous to Africa. And we've exported our Americanism. When we should be just sharing the gospel. Cultural freedom. People free to worship Jesus within how God made them in their own cultural context. We share the gospel across the planet. And what you see is beautiful. The gospel flourishing that culture. People praising Jesus in their own way. And you see this with Titus. Titus was not forced to give up his being Greek. He was embraced in his Greekness by the other Jewish apostles. The gospel brings that kind of freedom, but it also brings, I was trying to figure out the best description, so I'm kind of torn. Ministry freedom, I'm thinking of like freedom in your calling. And so what I'm describing here is, if you just remember, we read how Peter was called to reach the Jews with the gospel, and Paul was called to reach the Greeks with the gospel. And they both had the freedom in their calling. They both had the freedom to pursue God's call on their life, to pursue their ministry. And there was no judgment. It was just freedom. And this is very important because we all have unique and diverse callings and temperaments and ministry callings. And, and we should never try to stifle another ministry because it doesn't look like what you want it to look like. Maybe someone else is called to a ministry that you're not called to. And you're like, I don't know about that. Are you called to it? Don't worry about it. They had that freedom to pursue God in that way. You're not to judge. We need to have unity. And understand that even in this freedom to pursue our callings and our passions for Jesus and his glory can have a different season. And so, I mean, I could, I don't have time, this is not necessary, but I can give you many examples in my life and in Bonnie's life where we have had a ministry in a, for a season or in our home where we'll do one thing for a season and then, and then we move or things change or the spirit just leaves and, and we just transition into a new season. And we have that freedom. Just because you're in doing one thing one way as a family or as a church doesn't mean that the spirit won't lead you to something new. There is freedom in Christ and he brings this freedom to pursue what he's calling you to do 
without feeling judged by others, but just accepted and loved as part of the people of God. The church's fundamental need is gospel unity. And some real marks of what, without it being fake, but it being real, is that we give each other these kinds of freedoms that we have been given by our Creator. And that we don't try to stifle people, but just let them follow Jesus, how God has made them to be. Truth three. Let's talk about the threats to gospel unity. Let's read verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that's Peter, same, same name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You hear that? This is Peter, or like the leader of the 12 disciples. Peter, who walked on water. Peter, who on the first sermon led thousands to faith in Jesus. Okay? Like, that's him. A very important dude. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, in front of all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's like, oh, he just got in his grill. I mean, picture what Peter goes to visit Antioch. Antioch is nowhere near Jerusalem. It's further up north, headed towards Turkey. And that was Paul's hometown. And so Peter is visiting his homie. He's up there hanging with Paul with the Gentiles. And Peter has grown, and he's cool with them. He's having meals with them, which is a big, big deal for a Jew to do that with the Gentile. That's miraculous in itself. And so Peter is eating with them, he's hanging with them, he's enjoying their fellowship. But then James, another Jerusalem leader, and some other church leaders from Jerusalem go up to Antioch. And Peter's like, uh-oh. And when the Jews show up, he bails. He blows off the Gentiles. He's like, I don't, I, I don't know those people I would never hang out with those people. Like, I'm a good Jew. Racist. Hypocritical. But as it says here, not in line with, not ortho with the gospel. Not consistent with the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Paul says, oh, no, you didn't. You just not come up here with my peeps and disrespect our brothers in the faith like that. You did not just do that, Peter. That is wrong. It's hypocrisy. And it's violence to the gospel. And it's defeating the reason why Jesus came. And so we should not be opposing the gospel. We should be sharing it and seeing it flourish. And so you have Paul, who, by the way, yes, he was forceful. He said to his face, he opposed him because he was condemned. But he did do it with spirit of love. So he went to his brother 
because he loved him. And he wanted Peter to be healthy. And he wanted Peter to be consistent with the gospel and to welcome people and to not seek the approval of other people. Paul was saying, come on, Peter, you don't need those guys' approval. You've already got it from Jesus. These are our brothers. We need to embrace people that are not like us. And we praise God that Peter responded well. Let me give you briefly some threats to the gospel. I already alluded to them earlier, but I'll just give them to you. Threats to the gospel. One is nationalism. Nationalism can be a threat to the gospel because nationalism is believing that your nation is superior to others. And I'm not saying that that is wrong in and of itself to love your country, but what I'm saying is when you love your country more than you love the gospel, now you have a problem. And all under the guise, under the banner of the gospel, we have gone and we have exported our nationalism more than we have actually shared the gospel. And so we cannot focus on Americanizing other people. We need to focus on just sharing the gospel and letting them be who God's calling them to be. Another threat to the gospel is racism. It's just, it's alive and well today. But every single one of us comes from the same father, Adam. We share the same blood, so our skin color may be different, but on the inside, we're the same. We have the same blood flowing through our veins that has come from Adam. We are all image bearers of God. The gospel is for all people of all nations, of all backgrounds. And we have been set free to embrace people that are very different from us. And the goal is not to just like sit politely in the service next to someone that you really rather not sit next to because they're a little bit too different for your preference, but you endure a Sunday morning next to them, but then the next thing you're like, where else can I sit in the worship service because I'm not really feeling that. And, and, and yeah, I'm not racist. No, 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 none of us could ever have those kinds of attitudes. And yet if we're honest, any one of us can The goal is to share our lives and love each other. Another threat is legalism. I mean, that's what you see with with the circumcision party is legalism. Legalism at its essence is looking to something besides Jesus to be accepted by God. And every one of us, this includes me, every one of us has beliefs that have less to do with the gospel and more to do with things like personal preference or ethical behavior or maybe personal convictions or preference in type of church. And so a legalistic attitude will lead you to spiritual pride where you look down on other people. Let me give you one example. You're you're standing in a worship gathering and you look on the corner of your eye, and, and you see a sister who is, how do I say it? She's very expressive in her worship. But you're a much more reserved guy, so you just kind of do this on Sunday morning. And you, and you look and you say, dude, that's all kinds of crazy going on over there. I, I don't know what that's about, but that's, 
that's a show, that's not real, trying to get attention, or, or just, she's just so emotional or whatever. But in your mind, you've already looked down on your sister because she's different in how she worships. And now what if that same sister looked to you and said, I don't think he knows Jesus. Like, dude, he, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. There's no way. He's just standing there. He's not even worshiping. Who's more wrong? Equally wrong. We ought not be legalistic and judge each other like that. We have freedom to express our worship within how God has made us without condemning each other and being legalistic. Or looking at other churches and saying, well, we're better than them. Like, sorry that you're not as cool as we are. Like, mm, that's not from the Spirit. That's not healthy. That does, that does not come from the gospel. We welcome people that are not like us. We delight in our differences, and we have unity within our diversity for the glory of God. As we wrap up, strength for gospel unity. What is our strength? So this is truth for strength for gospel unity. Let me read to you verses 15 through 19. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant to sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's a lot in this section. You know, one of the beauties of studying a whole book like this is that we will go into our home groups and study this text further. So that's great. We do this together in home groups. And also, there's the same theme is repeated throughout Galatians, in particular in chapter 3. So this is describing justification by faith, and we'll talk about that far more in the next several weeks. And so I'll be very brief here this morning. We are justified, so we are declared acceptable to God, not because of what we can do. It says that by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So Jesus does everything for you or he does nothing. And that's up to us because he saves, he changes hearts, we respond. So these verses that I just read, verses 17 through 19, describe the transformation the gospel makes. And so he says that Christ is not a servant of sin. We have new hearts that yearns to serve him and we give up performance-based religion to earn anything from God. And he said that has been, it says, torn down. And it says that we literally die to the slavery of trying to earn salvation by being good or being religious. It's all about how we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, not by earning anything from God. And I love how this chapter ends. But I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if by righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And yet we know that he did die for a purpose. The strength for gospel unity is Jesus himself. We just read that by faith we're united to Jesus. The old rebellious self has died and now you're made new and it is Jesus who gave himself for you. He loved you and he lives in you and he works through you. And so you can see what God can do through you. It's through the strength of Jesus, not your own strength.